Coming up next on Twitch, this week in computer hardware, the Radeon HD 6990 Overclock, GeForce GTX 460 and 590 Benchmarks, the search for high-res notebooks, 5400 versus 7200 RPM hard drives, RAM fail, and more. Coming up next on Twitch. Netcasts you love. From people you trust. This is Twitch. Bandwidth for Twitch is provided by Cashfly at C-A-C-H-E-F-L-Y dot com. This is Twitch, This Week in Computer Hardware, episode 112, recorded March 24th, 2011. 6990, 59460, hike, GPUs a-poppin'. This episode of This Week in Computer Hardware is brought to you by Squarespace.com, the fast and easy way to publish a high-quality website or blog. For a free 14-day trial, go to squarespace.com slash twitch. Welcome to Twitch, This Week in Computer Hardware. I'm Patrick Norton, joined as always by the man, the myth, the benchmarking legend in pain, Brian Trout from <laughs> PCPer.com. Benchmarking I don't feel, problems? I, I, I don't feel very legendary when <laughs> things are crashing and they're not on fire yet. We talked about that for the show. Nothing's catching on fire, so that's always a plus. Not in your it's lab. It's probably a software issue, yeah. Exactly, in, exactly. In other exactly. labs. I, think about it this way. You may be having benchmarking problems, but nothing's smoking right now in your lab. That's a big we're plus. Hoping, we're hoping that for that con to continue to the foreseeable future. <laughs> There's only been a couple of very rare uh, times where I've hoped for that, where I've been pushing for that goal. One involved thermite. That was obviously on purpose. So, Hopefully that wasn't yeah, inside the lab. No, no, that was outside. Yeah, that was outside in a, in a giant <laughs> field somewhere where we melted a bunch of computer parts. That was a long time ago. That was fun. I bet it was. And probably gathered the attention of the neighbors. <laughs> That's why we went far away. That's why. <laughs> and uh, if you've ever seen computer smoke, like burning a motherboard, it's a pretty black, pretty nasty smoke that comes out of it. It's probably not healthy for the, for, for the, for the planet. I'll keep that in mind next time. So <laughs> The planet for you, the neighbors, the... <laughs> What is, actually, I don't know if it's healthy or not, overclocking the uh, Radeon HD 6990. You guys have been getting your overclocking on. Are you seeing significant performance improvements? Not necessarily um, significant. Now, when we say, so the Radeon 6990 was the card that came out a couple of weeks ago. Uh, we talked about it on this show. The new, it was the new fastest, best graphics card you could buy for $700. Um, it has a little switch at the top of it, which I won't try to show here because it's so tiny, that basically takes the card from its default stock speed of 830 megahertz per GPU to 880 megahertz per GPU and also increases the voltage to the GPUs by a small margin, allowing you, in theory, to overclock the card a little bit further. And along with that comes power consumption. So the reason they have the switch there is you know, they wanted to be able to sell a card that completely, completely met the PCI Express specifications for power consumption per slot based on the number of power connectors and all that kind of stuff. Flipping that switch, you know, there's a big sticker on it that says, if you do this, you're voiding your warranty, blah, blah, blah. So they can, you know, no, no uh, holds barred there. So now you can jump from a 375-watt card to about a 450 to 460-watt card, which is <laughs> huge. Um, you know, but in the end, we, we spent some time overclocking it. We benchmarked just the difference between 830 and 880 in terms of clock right. frequency, as you would expect. Not a big difference there. 
Uh, if you got the power supply for it and you don't really care, you just want to flip that switch just so you're making sure you're getting as much possible out of your card as you can, feel free. I was able to get uh, through further overclocking in software up to about 950 megahertz on the clock speed. Um, hmm. that's, that's, that's decent, right? Uh, that's about a 14% overclock versus the standard 830 megahertz clock rate. Right. So that's nice. Anything above that became very unstable. Um, even at 950 megahertz, though, I do need to point out, uh, it generates a lot more power, or it uses a lot more power, generates a lot more heat, and thus it becomes a much louder device. Um, that was kind of like the only complaint we had about the 6990 at launch as well was it was a loud card. It was fastest card we'd ever tested, fastest single graphics card in the world, without a doubt. Uses a lot of power, but it was noisy. Mm-hmm. Um, and that was kind of, it, it's, it's exacerbated, well, <laughs> exacerbated by overclocking. The fan spins up. I mean, we're talking, I think in my uh, noise level testing, something like 64 decibels. Wow, that's like my system. truck idling. Yeah, it's, you know, and I always have to explain to people who don't really know, and I'm not claimed to be, you know, a master of it, but 10 decibels is an order of magnitude in loudness. So right. I think they say 10 decibels is about twice as loud. If you go up 10 decibels, it's about twice as loud. Um, so if you had a graphics card that was 54 decibels your, or a graphics card that enabled a 54 decibel system and you go to 64, expect noise to be about twice as high. So that's well, three, three decibels is, twice, is, is roughly twice as high in volume. 10 decibels is an order of magnitude. It's like a factor of 10. Oh, okay. You know? 20, 20 is pretty quiet. 40 is like, you know, the background noise in an office. Um, right. But that's a, that's a big, uh, that's a 10 decibels is a big jump in volume. Um, yeah. Which, you know, that, that kind of leads us into the next story. So the 6990, man, that's been out for two weeks. That's old hat, right? Uh, <laughs> a new graphics card was launched today. And that's the GeForce GTX 590. This is kind of NVIDIA's answer to uh, the HD 5990, or I'm sorry, the HD 6990. Dual GPU, two GF110 GPUs in here, 512 cores per, per GPU, 1,024 total, three gigs of total frame buffer. Uh, a lot of people will see this as the G, it has very similar specs to the GeForce GTX 580, which is the top level single graphics card, of our single GPU graphics card available two of them on a single PCB. The problem is, uh, for NVIDIA at least, the GTX 580 is clocked at 772 megahertz, okay? This card, the GPUs are clocked at 607 megahertz. So that's a pretty noticeable drop. I think that's like 25 to 27% lower clock frequency on the GPUs. Um, and so a lot of people were, were kind of looking forward to this card. They were expecting this card to do really, really, really amazing things and kind of blow away even the 6990 because we knew what a pair of 580 cards and SLI as separate, separate cards will do. Um, it didn't turn out really to be the case because of this big clock speed drop. And they had to do that to meet power consumption requirements, to meet uh, noise requirements or, or, or thermal requirements and that type of stuff. So a 27% clock frequency decrease resulted in the GTX 590 not really being faster than the Radeon HD 6990 in our benchmarks. It was kind of weird. Mm-hmm. Uh, in the low resolution, 1680 by 1050, 1920 by 1200, uh, the, G- the, GTX, the two cards were fairly close. The GTX 590 had a little bit of an edge. At 2560 by 1600, which is a 30-inch monitor, 
the HD 6990 took the lead there. And I kind of extrapolated that into saying, you know, not a lot of people have 30-inch monitors. We know that from many episodes of the show. And, but what more people might do, I think, and I'm curious to get your opinion on this, is if you're buying a $700 video card, which is what <laughs> both of these cost, if you have a single 1920 by 1080p monitor, you don't need a $700 video card. But if you buy a $700 card and you have that configuration, you are either A, planning to get a 30-inch monitor, or B, planning to get two more monitors to do surround gaming, either Ifinity or NVIDIA surround. And so that the higher resolutions are obviously more important for cards of this class, of this budget, of this price range, I guess. I mean, what, what are your thoughts on that? Is, that? is that kind of like a, do you think that's a fair assumption? Or are there $700 graphics card people out there that just want to game at 1080p and move about? Well, I, I think there's always people, you know, I, I, I live in Northern California. I live near Silicon Valley. I see lots of $85,000 BMWs sure. at 55 miles an hour, which is to say 10 miles an hour below <laughs> the speed limit on the highway right. we're on, 101, 205, 80. Um, I have a number of ways of reacting to that behavior, buying an incredibly expensive high-performance vehicle or, in this case, graphics card and, and underutilizing it. You know, if you got the money and you don't want to take advantage of the actual capabilities of the card, hey, <laughs> good for you. But um, it just seems stupid. You know, unless you plan on adding, you know, multiple monitors or if you plan on a relatively you know, upgrading to a vastly a higher resolution monitor in the near future, it just seems like a waste of money to me. Um, yeah. But, you know, even if I had $700 to spend on a graphics card, I'd probably spend it on something else. <laughs> <laughs> if you yeah. look um, here, I've got the two cards sitting next to each other. You can see there is a size difference as well. Uh, the 6990 is definitely, it's an inch longer on the PCB. Um, and also, I don't know if you can get that from this angle of camera shot, but the 6990 just feels larger. The, the casing, the shroud for it is very boxy. It takes mm -hmm. up all of the possible space of two card slots, whereas the GTX 590 has this little dip here. It's, it's about full, full size here, and it kind of dips down throughout the length of the card, and that enables the, the, the fan that's placed in the middle here to draw in air if you have two of these cards next to each other. It allows right. it a little bit more space to draw in air for multi multi GPU quad SLI configurations and stuff like that. Um, it's a little bit more dense. It just kind of I don't know. It kind of looks nicer to me, uh, but I guess that's all personal preference. This is also the first Nvidia graphics card available that uh, has supports four monitors on the card: three Dual Link DVI and a Mini Display Port. Three Dual Link DVI is good if you have a bunch of uh, monitors that use DVI. You don't have to worry about getting adapters active or passive for that. It also means you can do NVIDIA Surround, 3D Vision Surround on a single graphics card. That's always good. Uh, and then again, we have the, the two 8-pin PCI Express power connectors. And that GeForce logo there is kind of cool. Uh, it lights up. It's got a little LED on it type of thing. It's just one of, those, one of those little nice touches, I guess, that I think we all deserve if you're going to spend $700 on, <laughs> on a pair of GPUs to go in your system. So... Interesting cards, um, both very impressive. Uh, you know, I, in my review, I kind of concluded that, that they're both good cards. The 6990 is just a little bit better. Unless right. noise is very pertinent to you, then the, 69, or the, the 590 from NVIDIA is 8 to 9 decibels lower 
under the same the same processing loads. So that's something to consider there if, if this is going to go uh, next to a 3D TV in your living room type of thing. So two, two thoughts on that one. Uh, I want to correct myself. Three decibel increase requires a doubling in power. It's not the same as doubling in volume. And 10 dB is definitely a doubling in volume, um, as in okay. you know 200% of the original volume. Two. Gotcha. If you got seven hundred dollars for a GPU, you probably have another, you know, two hundred dollars to water cool it. So it's relatively quiet. That's true. Uh, and in fact, EVGA. If, if you really want to spend a lot of money on graphics cards, uh, EVGA is offering what they call the classified editions that are water cooled, hydro copper quad SLI setup. So in the box, you get two GTX five wow. nineties with water cooling blocks on them, all for the low, low price of seventeen twenty nine ninety nine. Moving to something more affordable and approachable for the average listener and host of the Twitch mm -hmm. podcast, mm -hmm. let's move on to the EVGA GeForce GTX 460 to win. <laughs> yeah, I'm not sure what you think about the name of this product, but I'm... Uh, as long as it's not influenced by Charlie Sheen behaving badly, I'm okay with it. <laughs> I didn't think about that. That could be possible. EVGA is also the company that has like the FTW series of, of products as well. Um, so I guess it's not. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> What's interesting about this card is, I think we talked about it maybe briefly, so I'll just go over it. It's, it's, it's two GTX 460 GPUs on a single PCB. Back then, I think it was interesting, but we didn't know the pricing on it. They, it's now available uh, through the EVGA website. I haven't seen it on Newegg or anything like that for $429. And what's intriguing about that is just like the GTX 590, this card has three dual-link DVI outputs, and I think it has a mini HDMI instead of a mini DisplayPort. But it can do NVIDIA surround, 3D vision surround, all on one card. It has two GTX 460s, which in terms of performance levels is probably just above a single GTX 580, which is the fastest single GPU card. Um, but the GTX 580s will run $499. So for $70 less, you get potentially, again, we haven't, we haven't tested this yet, you get better performance and you get the capability to do three displays, rather than two, and NVIDIA surround at a, on a single card as, a, as opposed to requiring SLI. So it's an interesting product. And I just kind of wanted to bring it up again just to say that if you're interested in it, the price is out there now. Because I think I, before I said this could be a really cool product if the price is right. And I think they priced it pretty much appropriately for uh, the amount of performance you're getting and the amount of features you're getting and that kind of stuff. So uh, you can go to EVJ, look for the GTX 460 to win. And that is the number two, <laughs> W-I-N. So there you go. Our buddy uh, Kyle over at Hard OCP <laughs> is a man. He's a Texan. Every sense of the word, the best possible sense of the word. He's a plain-spoken individual. Uh, <laughs> and he is, I got to say, less than impressed with Crisis 2. Right. Um, I can't. I, I, this is a family podcast, I think, because uh, we're on the, on the Twit Network, so I can't directly quote some of the phrases in here. Uh -huh. uh, we have played them all. Far Cry, Crisis, and now Crisis 2. If you're relying on Crytek to stress your new AMD or NVIDIA GPUs, well, you will likely have to wait another four years or never possibly. Crisis 2 graphics suck. Yes, the graphics suck, and you all know why. Crytek sold us out for a bunch of delete exploitative 360 gamers. <laughs> Gameplay is about as exciting and motivating as pulling a scab off your dogs. And I won't finish that sentence in case there are impressionable children in the audience. <laughs> good call, good call. Uh, Kyle, I think, is probably the most outspoken 
I've heard, but I, I don't think I've heard anyone that's really excited about Crisis 2. Uh, um, yeah, I really, Gameplay, I should say, or graphics for that matter. It's interesting because we, we, we kind of discussed this on the PC Perspective mm-hmm. podcast last night, and one of, our, uh, one of the editors went back, reinstalled Crisis Warhead, which came out after Crisis. is kind of a slightly right. updated version. And played it, um, you know, right after playing Crisis 2. And he said that the, the, the graphics on Crisis War has seemed a little bit more cartoonish and not as good as the graphics in Crisis 2. And I played Crisis, for, or Crisis 2 for probably, I don't know, a good hour or something today, trying to learn the best possible ways of benchmarking it and that kind of stuff. Um, and it's not as mind-shattering as Crisis was by any stretch of the imagination, but I was playing it and I don't think it looks bad, especially if you mm-hmm. consider other games that have come out recently like Dragon Age 2, while a very competent role-playing game that I know tons of people uh, at AMD and NVIDIA as well as readers are in love with it in terms of gameplay. Graphically speaking, it's not impressive at all. I mean, it's just, it's not pushing GPUs really at all until you start getting into those Ifinity resolutions. So, you know, I haven't played Crisis 2 to really get into the gameplay a whole lot. To me, the gameplay is very similar to Crisis. If you didn't like Crisis, you're probably not going to like Crisis 2. Nanosuit, guns... Aliens, humans, <laughs> you know, do, do the math. I don't know. Like you said, none of us would necessarily be as um, direct as Kyle would be with his statements. Uh, but I don't know. It, it, with, with all the criticism floating around it, it might not be good to spend $60 on. Um, but maybe once it gets down into the 40 range, maybe when some of your friends get it, that type of thing. I mean, you know... Pick your review sites as you as you see. IGN gave Crisis Two four and a half stars out of five. I guess yeah. uh, nine point editor's choice. So it really comes down to a lot of your personal preferences as well as right. I guess as most gaming titles do. I know I've, a lot of our editors love Sins of a Solar Empire, and it bores me to tears. But <laughs> <laughs> that's that's the way it goes. I guess right. Your mileage may vary. Exactly. You have been warned. Hey, it could be an awesome experience for you. It could be a hateful experience. Well, uh, got Cedar Views. Oops, sorry. News coming out of uh, this story on Digitimes about Cedar Trail. C- yeah, Cedar Trail coming out, which I guess is a new platform designed for netbooks. Uh, I guess it's being kind of showcased at the IDF in Beijing. Do we have any other kind of like specs or stats on it or anything yet? 32 nanometer, basically it's, it's the next-gen Atom processor, netbooks, mm-hmm. nettops, entry-level, super low-end desktops are all in ones. Mm-hmm. Uh, 32 millimeter nano, 32 nanometer uh, Atom processor, Cedarview, which is in beta testing, ships May or June. We'll support mm-hmm. DirectX 10, uh, Blu-ray content playback, and dual display output. Uh, and other than that, not a lot of information. Super, yeah. I, I'm going to call this a super low-end chip and a super low-power yeah. chip. Yeah, I, I, I don't think from what I know about this part so far, uh, I don't think it's going to be drastically different than Pine Trail that we have today in terms of graphics performance or processor performance. But I would love to be proven wrong. Uh, you also linked us to more kind of speculative CPU information, this time from a uh, mostly Linux-focused website called Foronix. Uh, yeah. That, uh, looked at... Bull, early kind of bulldozer benchmarks on Linux. Did you see anything interesting here in terms of what they were seeing or what we would what we were expecting? 
So, you know, Bulldozer CPUs come in next quarter. They're sort of the, the first really hardcore redesign since the original Cade, Athlon 64 Opteron. Um, yeah. And nobody's nobody on, on Pharonix has access to the chips, but apparently up on the openbenchmarking.org website, the collaborative benchmarking uh, platform that, that they have out there, is one of the AMD server partners has submitted the AMD engineering sample, blah, 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 which is one of the new CPUs that's a 16-core Interlagos Opteron chip. So mm. if you're curious about like server performance or multi-core performance, uh, testing of the AMD Interlagos CPUs being done from a Supermicro H8 DGU motherboard, uh, 64 gigs of RAM, two terabytes SATA drive, and uh, Bulldozer CPUs, Socket G34 compatible with uh, Optron 6000 series. I thought it was interesting that they had 32 cores running at 1.8 gigahertz, um, with its C-ray time of being a, quote, mere 25 seconds. Um, that's pretty fast. That's like a uh, uh, yeah. Core i5 2500K with hyper-threading. Um, <laughs> Uh, plus a 3.7 gigahertz Intel Turbo Boost. No, let's see. Uh, Intel Core i5 2500K uh, runs at 61 seconds. The quad core AMD Optron 2384 takes 120 seconds, 127 seconds. Uh, core i7 970, which is six cores plus hyper threading, um, comes in at about 61 seconds also. Mm. So this is these are these are CPUs that will be extremely friendly to highly threaded application. And with 32 cores, you would think so. <laughs> <laughs> yes, I think so. Or, or at least and, hope. So, hope so, if you get yeah, if, if you have multi-threaded rendering programs <laughs> that yeah. rule your life, um, <laughs> you should be really excited. By the way, if anybody out there speaks German fluently, uh, check out technique3d.com if you've been looking for a fan roundup. It's crazy. They did a this German website, essentially, and, and you can kind of translate it uh, directly in German. It just comes through in that weird sort of stilted web-translated German. Uh, right. In spring 2010, the project was the first time to date many fans already tested at Technique 3D Revise and presented in more professional and better understandable form for our readers. Um, German accent, mine, not the translator's. But it's a really interesting collection of uh, uh, basically <laughs> fan. They basically went through and tested volume, power, performance, and started looking at uh, enthusiast-grade PC fans and trying to kind of get all engineering and scientific and take a look at the performance. So... Um, I'm still kind of puzzling through the mock German translations, so maybe I'll have a little bit better on that one uh, on next week. <laughs> nice, nice. All right, so. we've got a handful of emails uh, and a couple of Twitter questions in here as well to get to. But first, before we get to that, we will take a quick break here to thank today's podcast sponsor, Squarespace.com, the fast and easy way to publish a high-quality website or blog. Squarespace.com has an easy-to-use user interface, <clears throat> excuse me, for creating and managing a website or blog. It's optimized for both beginners and CSS experts with hundreds of design templates to choose from. And you can customize any of these designs to fit your needs. Uh, so if you have a, a lot of experience designing websites and you want to get into the nitty-gritty of the CSS code, you can absolutely do that. You can start from scratch. Even better, you can start from one of their templates that is kind of close to what you're needing and then uh, expand from there. It is an all-inclusive service that includes uh, your hosting and the, the, the bloggings type website software as well. It has 
several modules to build a website, like a blog module. It includes import and export support for WordPress, Blogger, Movable Type, TypePad. So if you already have a website on one of those platforms, you can easily try uh, Squarespace out. Uh, it has a forum section. It has a form builder that you can use to create forms to collect email addresses or other information from your site visitors. It's got Flickr photo displays, Twitter widgets, Google Maps, and a whole lot more. It also includes website tracking, built-in search engine optimizing, permission access handling if you want to have more than just yourself working on the website. Uh, you can have a whole team of people. Cloud architecture uh, is <clears throat> it's built on a cloud architecture for speed and stability, which means if your website starts to get a whole lot of traffic, you don't have to worry about buying new servers and upgrading different things like that. It's all included in this service, and it scales very easily on the fly. No work on your end. It uses an innovative drag-and-drop Ajax, inter Ajax interface, so you can move components of your site around so they fit your needs. They even have an iPhone app, so you can log in and update your site on the go quickly and painlessly. You can use Squarespace for all of your website needs, build it, host it, and update it anytime. If you want a free 14-day trial, go to squarespace.com slash twitch. You sign up for a free account. No credit card is required. Just try it out. Build your website. See if you like it. We really think you're going to like it. And uh, like I said, completely free for 14 days. Build it up and, and see what you think. It's squarespace.com slash twitch, T-W-I-C-H. And we thank them for their support of This Week in Computer Hardware. Thank you, Squarespace. Should we fire up the first of our viewer questions of the day? We should. First, we want to make sure we point out that if you have questions, Ooh. if you have questions, you need to be sure you are sending them to twitch, T-W-I-C-H, at twit.tv. We don't want to have a shortage of questions. You know, maybe it's, I don't know if it's possible, Patrick, that we've answered all of the possible computer-related <laughs> questions that exist. I mean, we've been doing the show for a lot of weeks. I don't know. Maybe, maybe we've, we're so good at answering questions that that's it. There's nothing left. I somehow doubt that that is the answer. <laughs> oh, okay. <laughs> well, in that case, send us your questions and let's get on to the first one. Eric's got a question about iFinity upgrades. He says, thanks for the great podcast. Thanks for listening, Eric. Now, I have an interesting question for you, too. My brother is busy upgrading his system one with an iFinity, possibly. Currently, he's got a E8400, 8 gigs of RAM on an MSI P45D3, and he's running an HD3870 GPU. He has three screens with a resolution of 1920 by 1200. He wants a new graphics card. He really wants the iFinity from AMD. Which card of AMD will probably run best in combination with his system? Does he need to upgrade to a Q9650 to give the graphics card the data it needs to be fast enough? Or will it all work out okay with the current CPU and motherboard? Can they handle the bandwidth of the graphics card? So the, the bandwidth of the graphics card is not really an issue there. But right. I know he's just talking about, is the CPU going to be a bottleneck for this particular system? Um, the it's, lowly it's, Core 2 Duo. <laughs> uh, it's a frequent question. The Core, 2, the Core 2 Duo is an old processor. No, no, no doubts there. Running at 4 gigahertz, though, it probably uh, is more than capable of most of today's games without any problem. There's only, you know, there's only a, a handful of games that really, really take advantage of more than two cores. Um, you know, for an extended period of time that makes a noticeable difference in, you, you know, your actual gameplay, your frame rates, that type of thing. Mm. Uh, 1920 by 1200, um, you know, I would look at the maybe the Radeon 6850 
That's a card right. that you can get for $180 or so, $175. Fairly uh, modestly priced. Will definitely be able to support Ifinity graphics configurations. Um, the, the, I guess the problem here is if he's going to do Ifinity, then you want to get a higher performance graphics card. So it, maybe 6850 is not the right way to go. Maybe get a 6950 or 6970. A 6970 will run you $370, and that's the fastest single GPU card AMD sells today. Uh, and that supports three displays out of the box with required for one display port to DVI adapter. Um, so, and, and if you get a graphics card like that, you know, you're kind of buying into the future as well when, when and if he decides to upgrade his CPU and motherboard to, uh, you know, a Sandy Bridge processor or something like that, then the, the Radeon 6970 will still be a very viable option. Now that I think about it, I'm kind of, depending on what image qualities he's used to, I don't really want to recommend a 6850 if he is going to go for that large Ifinity 5760 by 1080p resolution. Right. Um, that's a lot of pixels to push, and a lot of times even our high-end cards have have, uh, have trouble with that at certain settings. So um, he doesn't put a price on it necessarily. I would say um, I, I think it would be comfortable to go 6970 and, and see if that works with his overclocked 4 gigahertz dual-core processor. Just a Sounds thought. like a plan. Let's see. Neil's got a... Oh, we got an oh, email yeah. from Neil about notebooks and high-res screens. It says he's a big fan of the show. I'm in the market for a new laptop. Although I'm retiring uh, uh, late 2006, uh, while although I am retiring a late 2006 white MacBook, I am OS agnostic. I really like the MacBook 13.3-inch firm factor. It feels just right for me. I'd be willing to go up as far to the 14.5-inch screen, but bigger than that, feels too cumbersome. I dig the style of the solid aluminum MacBook Pro, but not the price. In a similar <laughs> vein. I like the HP NV15, although it's a bit too big. I want a graphic solution. I want a graphic solution for a light gaming, a la World of Warcraft, Left 4 Dead 2, and Flash Acceleration. I have been hoping for Sandy Bridge system with non-Intel graphics, but I feel like I've been waiting forever. <laughs> um, specifically, I've been waiting for the ASUS K43 and, uh, with the NVIDIA GeForce GT540, but can find no info on a release date or price when that drops. Do you have any ideas? What is, uh, why is it so unusual to find a 13.3-inch laptop with a screen resolution higher than 1366 by 768? I can't be the only one who wants a small laptop with a good high-res screen. I'd be willing to pay for the high-res screen, but you just don't see manufacturers offering fe those features in sub-$1,300 laptops. Um, I think, I mean, Patrick, do you, do you agree that the reason they don't offer resolutions higher than that at 13.3 and smaller in screens is that we get into that area of uh, pixel density being too dense and the icons are small. Yeah, small. Uh, yeah. I, I think uh, for a lot of people, they find it too... Uh, okay, people who, who live in Photoshop don't think it's too high resolution at that right. point. Most of the rest right. of the... Most people who get it look at that and, you know, you put it on an iPhone and, and, you know, all of a sudden you've got a retina display that has more pixels than your eyeballs can handle and you put it in a notebook, it gets a lot more expensive... Um, and it gets a lot less usable for most people, uh, right. without, you know, without going in and you know, configuring applications and magnifying sections and changing your text size. Um, mostly, though, it's just because you know, huge resolutions on 13.3-inch screens don't work um, for the average user, at least in the basic configurations for Windows or OS X. I'm sure someone will you know, point out why I'm wrong before the next podcast. Um, 
but yeah, I, I would be pleasantly surprised if you if you found anything that was like 720p or higher on a notebook that size. Um, yeah, I'm trying to think of any off the top of my head. Um, you know, I, I really can't think of any off the top of my head either. Um, he keeps he's talking about waiting for Sandy Bridge and that kind of stuff, and I wow, I really almost hate to say it, but it's like I really think we're right on the edge of those actually being mm-hmm. released and available. And I apologize if if, if I've said this uh, basically <laughs> since like the first week of January, um, but I really I really think that's the case. I really think we're very close to getting these out. Uh, Asus I know has several in in the in the lineup. Uh, I believe we have a review pending of something that starts with an N fifty three that is Sandy Bridge and Discrete. That's going to be a fifteen inch screen that he's not into. Um, <sighs> Yeah, I think if if you want if you know if you want a bigger the the problem is is like the bigger resolutions are on 17 inch notebooks which is like carrying around a lunch tray. Uh, I even feel right. like carrying around a 15 inch notebook is is a bigger screen. You know what I mean? Because usually yeah, I'm computing. Agree. You know, I'm in notebooks. I'm in tra- I'm in notebooks. I'm in airplanes. I'm in the back of a car. It's it's just if I want a big you know if I'm at home and I want a big monitor, I take my notebook, I plug it into a 24 inch monitor, and I'm happy. And more often than not. As long as I'm not gaming, the 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 smaller notebook has more than enough graphics oomph to power a 24-inch notebook. Right. Which may be, Neil, that may be the answer for you is is get a smaller notebook, you know, with a lower resolution screen for travel. Use a larger monitor at home. Um, but yeah, I, I would, I you know, if anybody out there has seen a 13.3-inch notebook with a higher res than 1366 by 768, do us a favor, email us twitch at twit.tv. And, and I also got to say, Neil, having had hands-on with uh, HP's NV15, most of Dell's lineup, IBM's ThinkPads, and, and quite a few others, um, part of the reason Mac is able, or I should say Apple is able to charge a premium for those limited MacBook Pros is because the build quality is outstanding. They are literally, right. it is billet. It is a block of aluminum. They have a giant room full of CNC machines that are carving those notebooks out. And it is a really fantastic piece of build quality, especially compared mm-hmm. to the previous generation aluminum MacBook Pros, um, which if you sneeze too hard, the case bent. So, <laughs> you know, it's it's something to consider. You can run, uh, you can run Windows on the, uh, on the MacBook Pros if you don't want to run OS X. Um, but you know, yes, they are. They they come at a premium, but it is a nice piece of engineering for the money. Just want to say that. Uh, if it was coming out of my pocket, I'd be rolling for probably a Dell notebook because I can afford those more easily. <laughs> Chris Fair has enough. a question about uh, moving Mac partitions, which actually applies to PCs too. He's uh, he's going to add an SSD to his MacBook Pro, and he's kind of it's kind of neat. Something you can do with the MacBook Pros is uh, uh, MC's got an OptiBay add-on. Basically, there's a couple companies out there that are doing kits, so you can take out the optical drive, the DVD drive, and replace it with an SSD or a second hard drive. He goes, I'm wondering how to move my OS X system data and applications over to the SSD to speed up boots while maintaining the iTunes iPhoto libraries and documents on the previous 5400 RPM 750 gigabyte hard disk drive. I'm also going to max out the RAM in the process of this upgrade. And, uh, you know, it's it's kind of interesting. The easiest way to move um, your uh, operating system over, the, the easiest thing to do is if you if you don't have too much, uh, depends on how much stuff you have installed in there and how large your SSD, right? Um, right. You know, the the problem is, is, is the simplest way to do it is to actually clone your existing installation, um, 
Macrium Reflect Free, Clonezilla, uh, great for PC, OS ten. I recommend Carbon Copy, Cloner, Super Duper, uh, Cronus, True Image is another one that's out there. There's a free version of that for 30 days. Uh, mm. uh, and those allow you to basically clone your old drive on your new drive. So if you're going to a larger hard drive, it's pretty painless to do that. Um, Here's the problem is migrating your applications over because what you're going to do, what you want to do, right, is you want to leave your system data on the old hard drive. I get it. It's 750 gigabytes. It's huge. You want to leave your applications on the old hard drive. Not a problem, but automating the process of separating your operating system from your hard, from your, from your applications gets really interesting. Um, I almost want to say it, it, it should be as simple as changing the way things point, but I don't think there's an easy way to do that in OS X. Um, and that's actually a question I'd like to throw out to the audience is whether or not you can actually start dropping. It would be interesting if you could drop the applications mm. folder onto a second hard drive. But, you know, my initial thought is you're going to have to change where you locate everything. And, you know, now that I think about this, it's not quite as simple as I originally thought the question was. Yeah, um, it's it, it's kind of like the, iTunes the and the thing. photo. It's, sorry, go it's ahead. Com- I was gonna say it's just as complicated on Windows when somebody wants to, uh, you know, install their applications, but then have their uh, my documents folders and and that kind of stuff and all their data on a different drive. It can be done on Windows. I know it can be done. It's just kind of a little complicated initial setup type thing. So I'm not really sure how you would do it on a Mac. All the Macs I have worked on have been laptops and that kind of stuff. So we're always talking a single drive. Never really had to worry about that. Mm-hmm. This, is, this is a good time to um, milk the audience for information. I'm sure there have been people that have done this. Um, Somebody in the chat room saying you can point directories on OSX by using symbolic links. Linux, yeah, like, Linux-based operating systems, you can do that. But is there a user-friendly way of doing that? Is there some application that you can get <laughs> that will automatically set all that kind of stuff up? I, wouldn't, I would hate to have to teach my sister about yeah. symbolic links and how to set those up and that kind of stuff because then I'd have to learn about them myself. That would be a painful process. Yeah, because like the, the easiest way to do it is to, you know, like on Windows, you just reinstall all your applications and install your applications on the second drive. Yep. <laughs> um, but I don't know of a clean, I don't know of a simple application that will migrate your installed applications to a second drive on OS X or PC. Yep. So, yeah, definitely email us twitch at twit.tv for that one. We got an email here from Johnny about RPM speeds on notebook drives. He says, I'm getting a hardware refresh at work. Good job. Congratulations. First question. <laughs> Is a 7200 RPM drive much better than a 5400 drive for onboard? Uh, or should I go with a smaller... F- mm, let me read this again. Is a 7200 RPM drive much better than a 5400 RPM drive? Uh, should he go with the smaller 500 gig 7200 RPM drive versus the larger 750 gig 5400 RPM drive? Next question, if I should go with the SSD at all costs and beg for it over the traditional hard drive, if yes, how do I migrate the low amount of storage in a fast portable way? We kind of already went over uh, how you do data portability uh, and that type of thing. If, as long as you, depending on how much storage you're using on your machine, you might just be able to copy it all over. Um, uh, is the SSD worth it at all costs? I don't know about all costs. That's wow. I mean, <laughs> I don't, I don't, I don't know about all costs, but it's it's probably the the best upgrade most users can do today um, to improve their overall performance and computing performance that they likely don't know about or don't understand. Right. 
Um, that being said, I mean, what do we think about the difference of a 7200 RPM and a 5400 RPM drive, especially in the mobile form factor? Um, one of these, there's, uh, spindle speed isn't traditionally right. Back in the olden days, the big jump from 5400 to 7200, 7200 RPM, you were looking at like a 20% performance difference in the early days of 7200 RPM drives. And then aerial density, the number of bits per square inch got so high you could end up with a slower drive that actually moved more bits under the head at 5400 RPM than a faster 7200 RPM drive did because the 7200 RPM drive had a lower aerial density. Matter of fact, mm -hmm. uh, the tech report did a really good uh, roundup of, of uh, 2.5-inch drives, I want to say about a year, year and a half ago, and that's one of the things they found out is, is that uh, – this like uh, the momentous 7200 was actually slower than some of the 5400 RPM drives in the roundup. So I, I'm going to say, you know, I would go for capacity over spindle speed. Um, mm. um, you know, if capacity is your primary issue, I would say if capacity is a major issue um, and you don't have the the exceedingly rare these days ability to put two drives into your system. Um, I would probably go with this traditional drive um, over the SSD. Um, you know, mitigating the amount of storage in a fast portable way. Well, heck, if it's under, you know, 32 gigabytes, 32 gigabytes of data that you need to, to pack on in addition to the SSD drive, get a thumb drive, a 32 gigabyte thumb drive for a hundred bucks. Um, 64 gigabytes gets kind of expensive, 200 bucks. Anything larger than that, I'm going to say, get an external USB hard drive, which the performance yeah. isn't bad. It's nowhere near as good as the onboard hard drive. Um, but for, you know, basic data, uh, you can live with it without uh, being too upset. I mean, if it's yeah, like so. your iTunes collection, the movies you watch while you're traveling on the road, it's not going to matter if it's on a USB drive externally. But, uh, um, you know, I'm going to guess the 750 gigabyte, 55, 5400 RPM drive is going to be almost indistinguishable <laughs> from the 500 gigabyte, 7200 RPM drive. Yeah. Um, you know, I could be wrong about that one. Uh, I haven't found a good roundup, a, a good roundup from the last year um, of drives. Like the nearest one I could find, I would say, is, is that tech report, and that was late 2009, early 2010. Hmm. But don't hmm. assume that the faster spindle means a faster speed. Right. So, sorry. <laughs> Got an email from Tristan about a memory post fail. Hey, Ryan and Patrick, a buddy of mine is building a new computer got the parts in and is only able to get the computer to go past post with one stick of RAM in the fourth slot on the new MSI P67A GD65 motherboard with a Core i7-2600K. He bought 16 gigs of RAM and really like to use more than four gigs, obviously, if he bought more than that. Uh, thanks, guys. Love the show. Tristan <laughs> in Portland. Um, so you had a couple of links in here. Obviously, MemTest is one of uh, probably our favorite kind of stability testing things. I'm curious, uh, the first thing I would try is <clears throat> do all four modules boot when that is the sole module in the system in that fourth right. slot? If they all do, then maybe we can assume that all four memory modules are working fine. Mm -hmm. And then I would try all four of them individually in all the other slots and see what you can get out of it that way. It's possible if that's the case, that it might be a bad motherboard. But um, you're, you're saying you're reading uh, with, uh, online about people having problems with memory voltage on some of these motherboards? Yeah, I thought that was interesting. Um, 
um, a couple different places online, people were having issues with booting more than one stick of RAM, and the solution was to uh, make sure the voltage was set properly for the memory going to the BIOS. So, you know, basically uh, get your one stick in, boot it in, boot past the postcode into the BIOS, mm. um, verify the voltage. Uh, probably a good time actually also to, to update your BIOS, make sure you have the latest BIOS from the manufacturer. Um, but a low voltage is actually causing problems with people booting with more than a single stick of RAM on that motherboard, probably other motherboards too. So I'm wondering if that's kind of a, a a problem at the factory where they set the voltage a little lower than your memory is looking for. But uh, overall, most people are pretty happy with the board. You know, Ryan's right. First, go through and make sure all four sticks of memory are actually functional. Because um, if, if the, it'll boot with all four, menses, all four sticks separately, then you probably don't need to waste time right now running MemTest86, um, <laughs> which takes yeah. a long time to run a thorough test. Um, if it doesn't boot with all four sticks around, then you can assume that those sticks are having issues and you should replace those or, or return them to the vendor for replacement. Um, but yeah, that's, this is a pretty, you know, if you take a look at the new egg reviews from the motherboard, um, this is, uh, you know, you know, when you get up to a few hundred, uh, reviews on Newegg, or in this case, 120 reviews, four stars. <laughs> this is this is generally a sign that you have a, a decent motherboard. Um, right. A lot of people you know, are buying it, yeah. You have like 500 reviews and 25% of them are, or 25 or 50% of them are one star because the motherboard died. Then you have a, that's a strong oh. sign that the motherboard has a problem. Um, right. You know, the Crucial, Crucial makes pretty good memory. I don't, I don't really see the Crucial memory being a problem. Um, it, it, yeah, it's pretty. It's all pretty uh, standard, run-of-the-mill stuff now. Yeah. So. so that would, yeah, just to make sure the memory works first, and then I would check the voltage to make sure the voltage is high enough. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah, and it, and the motherboard supports 32 gigabytes of memory max. So. I yeah, just, and it's not a capacity issue, and no. uh, we haven't had any problems with these motherboards fill, uh, populating all four memory slots. Uh, they've mm-hmm. done pretty good with that kind of stuff. So, um, it, to me, it seems if. It's either uh, one memory module, check all four, or I would kind of lean towards a, a motherboard RMA, unfortunately. Right. Let's check around. Definitely keep an eye out for that one. Yeah. Veer Maharaj says, at Ryan Stroud, at Patrick Norton, is GPU-based video encoding ever going to be as efficient or look as good as CPU-based video encoding? Oh, boy. <laughs> um, I can, I would say today it is more efficient than CPU encoding in terms of if we look at power efficiency and time efficiency. Right. It's definitely faster when you can do GPU-based video encoding. Um, and it gets really messy now because the Intel uh, QuickSync technology that came out in their Sandy Bridge processors is technically GPU-based right. video encoding. It's, not, it's, it's, it's fixed function hardware video encoding. Uh, that only works in a select bunch of applications like Cyberlink Media Espresso and that kind of stuff. Um, and I think, you know, the applications that first came out for GPU encoding, like Bada Boom, that type of stuff, it was really an NVIDIA-sponsored CUDA application. Um, mm-hmm. I would agree the image quality of the results uh, weren't not as good as the CPU, maybe like using Handbrake or something like that results. Uh, I think a lot of that has been fixed with these more consumer oriented applications um, they're not as they're not being pushed as hard to see as dramatic of performance difference between the CPU and GPU so they might uh, they, they're allowing the, the GPU based encoding to take longer 
as long as they get the same type of quality output as you get when you're just using the CPU alone. Um, but I, I think we're the the kind of the, the the rush of CUDA applications and stream computing and GPGPU applications has kind of passed us because video encoding and transcoding was like <clears throat> that one key thing that consumers could point to, and then when the Intel Sandy Bridge processors came out and were you know 100% faster uh, than than what Nvidia and AMD could do with their highest end GPUs, kind of mm-hmm. kind of killed the enthusiasm for both companies to really push and promote it. <laughs> unfortunately, fortunately or unfortunately, I guess, depending on how you want to look at it. Yeah, I think over time, um, the GPU-based video encoding is going to improve, um, mm-hmm. especially if the consumers complain about the, the quality. Um, yeah. And I've also noticed um, video encoding, even at the, the high-end professional level, uh, you know, when you're talking about $1,000, $5,000, $10,000, $50,000 a seat applications can mm-hmm. be a little bit more of a black art than, sure. than anybody selling that stuff wants to admit. Right. Um, and, and, and video codecs themselves, um, they either work really well or occasionally they don't work anywhere near the way they're supposed to, especially with open source codecs. So trying a different encoding tool can often make for a radically different result uh, on the same hardware. Um, you know, and, and changes also, I, I've seen in theory changes that should not impact the video output at all. Uh, changes to the original source file make dramatic impacts on, on what happened with the video encoding tools. So, you know, yeah. I'm with Ryan. It's more efficient. The GPU encoding is more efficient, and I'm, I'm going to say um, the quality is going to get there, especially if people demand greater quality. Uh, right now, though, it's it's also it's really becoming an H.264 kind of world out there. Um, <laughs> at, at least until For now. you know, yeah, at least until V8 comes out and and some other stuff that's that's kind of waiting in the woodworks. Chimera 96. Oh, this one's a good one for you, Ryan. (laughs) Uh, He says, uh, HTPC, is the AMD E350 powerful enough for recording multiple high-definition over-the-air cable card feeds at once? Or should I stick with the Core i3 or other options? Um, If you're recording multiple high-definition feeds... Yeah. Uh, I do not think the AMD E350 is going to be the part you want to use for that. Or the it's Atom possible that, that it could do that. What's that? I, I wouldn't go with an Atom <laughs> CPU either for that matter. Oh, God, no, no. I mean, the AMD uh, E350 is going to be faster than the Atoms out there. Um, mm-hmm. But it's mostly faster because of its GPU implementation, not necessarily because mm-hmm. of its CPU limitation or uh, implementation, rather. So uh, the CPU cores on it aren't going to be that much faster than what Intel's Atom is. And, you know, you're, you're, you're doing transcoding on the fly, kind of, I guess, when you're recording it. So I would, I would definitely um, move, move towards, like, a quad-core AMD processor or at least, you know, a quad-core Intel Core i3, Core i5 part. I mean, you can get those that are going to be super quiet, super low power consumption, not quite as cheap, unfortunately, if that was the goal here. But, I mean, if you're... I mean, first of all, if you're going multiple high-definition cable card inputs, you're going to need a system that is kind of beefy, right? I mean, I don't know if he's talking about using that, uh, what is that, Eton card, Ceton card, um, mm-hmm. that does the multiple cable card slots. I mean, even that, I think I think you need is more processing power than that 
if you're doing multiple streams at the same time. Right. I mean, you have more experience with that than I do, the actual the, the, <laughs> that aspect of the home theater part of it. But having no hands-on experience doing that exact task on that exact processor, I don't think that processor's up for that, up for that, uh, that task. A Core i3, though, should do it just fine. And a Core i5 will do an amazing, amazing job with that. Yep. Cool. At Ryan Shroud, at Patrick Gorton from Cruel. How about the trade-offs of dual graphics card, SLI, or Crossfire versus dual GPU cards? Um, well, <laughs> single slots, smaller footprints. Um, yep. Pretty much almost exactly the same power consumption. Uh, and probably the same amount of heat going inside your case because you still basically have the two GPUs are just stuffed onto a single card. Ryan's right. holding up the mother of all dual GPU cards right now. So it's interesting because you get you, you can put this card maybe in some cases. You could be able, you'd be able to put this on a micro ATX motherboard that you couldn't put two GTX 580s on a micro ATX motherboard. Some of them you can't, but most of the time you can't. Um, this is, you know, you're not going, you're going to save a little bit on power consumption in total, actually, all else being equal because you're not powering uh, two different PCBs and all the power, all the electronics that go along with it. It's not a huge difference there. It's going to be very similar if the GPUs are specced and clocked the same. Um, you know, the, for NVIDIA, the benefit of a single card with dual GPUs is you get support for four monitors you can, that you do not get with individual cards. Um, SLI... If we look at SLI and Crossfire configurations, actually, I, I kind of point this out. If you look at the review that I wrote on PC Perspective of the GTX 590, uh, the GTX 590 costs the same as a pair of GeForce GTX 570s. Uh, they, the 570s use more power, but they perform better. They take up more space in your case. But you have that option. Also, one of the things I always like to, to kind of promote is the option of upgrading as you go type of thing. Hmm. So you can buy one $350 GTX 570 today and buy another one next month when you get your next paycheck or something like that. You know, unless there's a layaway program that I don't know about at Newegg or something, you don't get to do that and you don't get half of the card in the meantime. Uh, but I, I think... The, the crossfire configurations can make sense as well um, versus versus a single 6990 for, for the exact same reasons. You get the upgrade path. You get a little bit about, little bit better performance. Acoustics aren't necessarily going to be better. Potentially, your overclocking headroom is going to be better okay. as well because each, process, each GPU has its own heatsink and fan and power regulation and all that other kind of stuff. Uh, it doesn't have to compete with that kind of thing. Uh, it's it, it's it's kind of a it's a mixed bag, right? Because it's, you can always it seems to me you can get more performance per dollar if you go with multiple GPUs or multiple graphics cards rather than multiple GPUs on a single graphics card, and you get the benefit of the quote pay over time theory of things. So there's you know if you buy one seven hundred dollar graphics card, you're kind of stuck with that. No going backwards. You know, if you decide you only need one of the GPUs in power, you can't sell the other one on eBay, that type of thing. Having two separate <laughs> cards gives you just a little bit more flexibility down the road. Maybe you buy one GTX 570 and you game on it for a month and you're like, wow, I, I don't need to spend $350 more. This is more than enough power for my 1080p display to run Crisis 2 and Metro 2033, things like that. Um, if you 
But if you plan to do a quad SLI or four-way crossfire, by all means, <laughs> spend the $700 on the video cards today uh, and, and go all out, I guess. There you have it. By yep. the way, I've been uh, nosed around a little bit. I think mm -hmm. I was looking actually uh, in an article up on uh, chris.brillo.com about moving your home folder. Apparently, uh, applications, library, system, and users are the four uh, main folders in OS X. Apparently, you cannot move applications, uh, library, and system folders. They all have to remain in your boot drive. Hmm. And... So you may not be able to move an application. So still hmm. looking on for more information on that one. If uh, anybody out there, again, has an idea, <laughs> email us twitch at twit.tv. But it's looking like OS X cannot mount the applications anywhere other than on the boot drive. You got a hardware question for us. That's normally our speciality to quote Wallace and Gromit's twitch at twit.tv or hit us at Twitter at Patrick Norton at Ryan Shrout. PCPer.com is the man's main gig. What's coming up there this week on PCPer.com, Ryan? Uh, this week we are going to have uh, a, a discussion of 3D Vision versus AMD HD 3D, which uh, gaming and, and PC <laughs> implementation of 3D technologies is actually better uh, for the consumer, is better going forward. Uh, we have another graphics card launch next week pending it booting and, and working correctly. Uh, after I get off of uh, off of the show here and, and go back to hitting it with the <laughs> hammer, so uh, a lot of a lot of interesting stuff coming up very soon. Hopefully, we'll have another five ninety and sixty nine ninety to do quad GPU testing next oh. week. Oh, well. so uh, we're preparing the air conditioning right now. I like that. I like the idea of fourteen hundred dollars. No, that would be like four. Yeah, fourteen hundred dollars of per configuration. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Anything uh, new coming up on Techzilla HD Nation? Uh, the episode that just posted, uh, we're talking about uh, AT&T killing off T-Mobile. Uh, we got hands on. Our CTO has actually had a Zoom for almost a month, so he talks about his experience with the Zoom. Uh, let me hit pause because something just started in the background of my computer that I want to kill. Um, we got some really good ideas. If you want to move a whole bunch of files onto your iPad, uh, Comcast alternatives, how to build a DIY ISP. And on the next show coming up, we compare my $650 refurbished uh, Optoma HD 180 HD 20 uh, front projector to a $6,500 digital projection unit. Oddly enough, they use the same lamp module and the same color wheel. Oh. <laughs> or nice. I should say, that I think they actually use the same DLP, but uh, beyond that, things get very different very, very quickly. Cool. I think we're going to call it a week. I'm Patrick Norton. Oops. No, no. Do we fade out? No, I don't think so. Maybe we no. should just, let, let's just close that again. <laughs> I think we're going to call it for this edition of This Week in Computer Hardware. I'm Patrick Norton. I'm Ryan Schrout. We'll see you next week on Twitch. Twitch.